But before we kick off, Mike and I both just want to say we have really enjoyed the book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, uh, out of every book we do on IRC Book Club, I always get a couple of little takeaways where I think, actually, that's sunk in. And I've had a couple of nice ones, which we'll talk about. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Do I sound all right? You sound great. Good. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. to this episode of IRC Book Club. Today we have on the show live via video. Where are you today, Nir? I'm in New York City. From you New get... York City. We have yeah, Nir which I'm sure you'll hear in the uh, background noise uh, bits of New York City here, unfortunately, but I'll do my best to kind of keep it down the sirens if I can. Fantastic. Author of Indistractable. Um, Nir, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. This is a very different book to a lot of the books we've covered on IRC Book Club. So as you know, and you've probably done a little bit of homework before you came on the show, we're a sales recruiter. So a lot of our audience are very senior level salespeople in the tech sector. That That's our audience. That's where they live. That's where they work. And we chose this book because actually we felt it was very, very relevant to our audience. Um, they live in a very noisy, very time pressed, very stressful challenging world and we wanted to bring a book to the show that wasn't just make sure you close more deals this is how Mm. you can get more opportunities it was a different way of thinking about what makes them successful at work and one of the biggest challenges i i had with initially with this book was getting mike excited about it because mike is a machine who who is indistractable Mm. he was indistractable before he read the book I'm pretty good at being indistractable, but Michael is actually, we, we used to refer to Michael as the Pricetron 3000. Um, <laughs> he, he, he is a machine. So it was almost hard. Get, Mike, I think, has probably found it hard in a way to comprehend, well, why, why would you allow uh, notifications to distract you on your phone, haven't you, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've also have enjoyed the book. I think to, you know, to continue Jonathan's point, you know, the salesperson has many different characteristics that make them a good person. And the ability to concentrate on a task is a very important one, actually. Yeah. Um, but I've got some good takeaways from the book, and I'm going to look forward to talking to you about it. And Absolutely. I know you've got, yeah. I know you've got a few questions to ask Nia, haven't you? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there, so there certainly are people out there who don't find that distractions a problem. Every once in a while, I think I've met maybe three. So this, might, you might be the third person I've I've met that right. doesn't have a problem with distraction, <laughs> Mike. Um, but yes, you know, so the the book might not be for people who 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 find that they don't have a problem doing what they say they do every day. I mean, I I know when I worked in sales, I did not enjoy making sales calls. It's <laughs> it's it's very hard work, right? Sitting on the phone and dialing for dollars is a lot of work. It's really yep. tough. And but that's what's required. That's part of the job. And so, you know, what I was looking for was strategies one to to help the people like me. I mean, I'm patient zero here. I wrote the book for myself before anyone else. And so what I was really looking to do is to help the people who know what to do, 
which we all basically know what to do. Who doesn't know yeah. basically the way to succeed? You know it. We've read enough books about sales success. It's common sense. Do the goddamn work. That's what you have to do. Okay, big surprise. Question yeah. is, why don't we do it? Why don't yeah. we do it? If we know what to do in, in all aspects of life, we know we should eat right. We don't. We know we should exercise. We don't. We know we should be focused when we do our work. We know we need to make those sales calls, but we procrastinate. We're with our family. We know we should be fully present, but we're not. The question is, why not? Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? That's the big question. It turns out that that question is the same question that Plato asked 2,500 years ago. He called wow. this tendency a krasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. This is an age-old question, so it's not a new problem. Distraction has always been with us. It is part of the human condition. I think what's new, what's changed, is that if distraction you are looking for, then it is easier than ever to find. Because of these technologies that we carry around with our pockets, it's easier than ever to go off track and do something that you didn't intend to do. So that's really what the, the book helps to solve. Yeah. And, and one of the things I said to Michael before we started the show today, so I said, I really like that you haven't blamed big tech mm. in the book. I think it's so easy. You know, uh, um, uh, you've got, I get the impression you've got quite young kids. I've got teenager at home. And I do believe we are in the midst of a bit of a mental health epidemic. Mm. Um, I don't know what it's like in America, but I think that there is more mental ill health, particularly amongst teenagers now than there the, the was when we were kids. But our lives were much more simple. And I think it's very easy sometimes to point the finger and say, oh, it's Zuckerberg's fault. Oh, it's Google's fault. Oh, it's Twitter's fault. Oh, it's Instagram and Snapchat. It's driving the kids crazy. But actually, the kids are driving themselves crazy. <laughs> well, they're, 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 the subject of kids is like a whole section in the book about how to yeah. raise respectable kids. But I do think, you know, your point is, is a really good one in terms of of whether this stuff is actually helpful. So I, I, what, you know, I tend to see that people fall into two categories, either the blamers or the shamers. The blamers, they say, oh, you see, the reason I'm not able to do what I say I'm going to do, the reason I got distracted was because of this darn iPhone. It was because of Facebook. It was because of this. It was because of that. Those are called the blamers. And of yep. course, that's not very helpful because what are you going to wait for these companies to change? You're going to wait for the geniuses and in, in our in our legislators to to do something about this? Come on, Correct. you're going to hold your breath waiting for these changes to happen. You're going to suffocate. So the blame route doesn't really work because by the time anything's done about this, it's going to be too late. You know, years and years are going to have passed. And then the other route that a lot of people take is what I call the shamers. The shamers are the people who say, "Oh, you see, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not cut out for this work." I'm lazy. I'm deficient. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And the shamers, of course, make things worse for themselves because by creating more of this uncomfortable sensations, you know, it turns out that is a primary source of distraction, these yeah, uncomfortable is. sensations that we seek to escape from. And so it sends them down this shame spiral, which makes them even more likely to seek out escape through distraction. Oh, I so feel terrible. So I'm going to have a quick look on Facebook and it will cheer me up. Exactly. Then they, quick... then they realize what losers they are because all their friends have got new cars on Facebook and then they feel terrible. So they look at Facebook again. Right. A quick look on Facebook, a quick swig of a bottle, a quick yeah. look at, at television, see what the latest sports uh, happening in sports are. You know, all of these things can be distractions, lots and lots of distractions out there. So the right path is not to be a blamer or a shamer. The right path is to be a claimer. A claimer says to themselves, look, it's not my fault. It's not your fault that Facebook was created, that alcohol was invented, that, that there's you know rugby and, and, and football on TV. That's not your fault that these things exist. But guess what? It's your responsibility. 
And so by claiming responsibility and saying, what can I do today as opposed to blaming others or shaming myself, that is how we get onto the path of becoming indistractable. Yeah. And I think this is a very valid conversation. You know, if you look at our audience, how many, Mike, would you say work from home? Oh, at least 90 percent, I think. Yeah, I would say 90% of our audience work from home where, uh, where and I, I remember in my first job out of university, I worked from home age like 22. My guitar playing really improved. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, but, and, and I wish I'd known then what I, you know, I knew now and had learned, for example, in a book like this. But it, it, it's so relevant and it, it, it is, it's you, it's not them. It's not, it's not my guitar's fault. Right, right. And, and look, th this is what's so important about this topic is that there's this dichotomy between what we call distraction. And if you want people to understand what distraction is, the best way to understand it is by understanding what distraction is not. What's the opposite of distraction? And most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus. But that's not true, actually. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That, in fact, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word. Traction and distraction both end in the six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls us towards what we want to do, things that we do with intent. The opposite yep. of traction is distraction, anything that pulls us away from what we plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything, anything can be a distraction. How many of us sit down on our desk and say, okay, now I'm going to call those sales leads. Now I'm going to do that thing I've been procrastinating. Now I'm going to do the thing that I finally know I need to do right after I check some email, right? Yeah. Email seems worky. Email seems like a kind of productive thing to do. But if you email when you plan to make sales calls, when you plan to do something else, that is just as much of a distraction. It is taking you off track from yeah, what you plan to do with intent. And the same goes with traction. That just like anything can be a distraction, anything can also be traction. So I've got nothing wrong with saying, hey, I want to watch some TV. I want to watch a football match on t uh, uh, or uh, I want to be on Facebook. There's nothing wrong with any of these technologies if you use them on your schedule and according to your values as opposed to on somebody else's. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is with that little glimpse of, oh, I'm just going to check email because I'll feel like I'm important and I'm doing the right thing right now. Actually, there is a subconscious message to that that the individual sends to themselves that they're not consciously aware of, which is you're a loser. You didn't do what you said you're going to do. There's this there's this voice in the, there's a subconscious voice that said you didn't just do what you said you were going to do. And it, that's so true. And that I, I find sometimes, and Mike and I have seen it as managers, where it almost magnifies in the mind of the individual over a period of time. And then it goes back to that loop of, like you say, of, oh, well, I feel terrible about myself, so maybe I'll just do something dis distracting. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I think very few people these days have felt the joy of what a good day of work feels like. Yes. Because what people do all day long is they have this to-do list of 99 different things that they have to do all day, right? They carry around this massive to-do list, which I used to do. And they have a really productive day, right? They get a lot done and they do five of those things on their 99 thing to do to-do list. And now they look at their to-do list and they still have 94 more to do that they won't get done that day. And it feels yeah, terrible. Feel terrible. It feels like crap every day. This is what you go through and you recycle your to-do list day after day after day. It makes no sense. You know, there's that saying that insanity is defined as doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. 
That's how most of us live our lives. And so to break that cycle, these, this is the, these are the four techniques that I provide in the book on how to break that cycle so that now we can identify why we get distracted so we can do something about it. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Mike, you were going to say something then. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to sound tremendously old-fashioned, really, but I think it's just general weakness. I think people are weak. <laughs> And I know that's a really old-fashioned thing to say, and I know people will disagree with me, but I sort of think, you know, the intelligent people I deal with, I find, have strength in their mind. They know when their mind is being dragged elsewhere, so they stick to what they want to do. Well, I have to I have to take issue with that, Mike, a little bit, because I would say that I'm one of those weak people. I have never had good self-control. I hate the word willpower. It sends shivers down my spine. Why? I used to be I used to be clinically obese. And so my parents, my grandparents, my my two older brothers would just say, have some self-control. Stop eating so much. What's wrong with you? So how did you so how did you become such a svelte looking gentleman? Then? <laughs> I I stopped relying on willpower. Willpower doesn't you work. You created a willpower of your own type. Well, so here's the thing. If there's one, if you want to know what the book is about in one sentence, the mantra that I want folks to remember is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That in the moment, they're going to get you, right? If the, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit, you're going to smoke it. If the cell phone is on your nightstand and it's eight inches away from you when you wake up in the morning and it's closer to you than your lover is in your bed, well, then you're going to pick up your cell phone before saying hello to the person next to you in bed. It's too late at that point because all you're relying upon at that point is self-control, is willpower. But your willpower is always going to be weaker than that cigarette, that chocolate cake, or your cell phone. So the antidote is forethought because if there's one thing that – mankind can do that no other animal on the face of the earth can do it's that we can foresee the future in a in higher resolution than any other animal we can predict what is going to happen better than any other creature on the face of the earth that's one of our most okay. amazing gifts and so the antidote to all of these problems with impulsiveness to doing things against our better interest in the moment is not waiting until the moment it's setting up a system in place so that when we are likely to get distracted, we don't do something we didn't intend to do. We don't do something that leads us towards distraction. Our day is spent in traction. Yeah. Okay. I get that. It's interesting that you use this word forethought. Michael and I often talk a lot about simple self-awareness. Uh, and I think you're, you're synonymizing it with forethought about being aware of what is going to happen. Uh, I think a lot of it is that awareness of your own thought process. Mm. awareness of right now yeah what am i doing right now Why am I yeah. doing this? that's that's a really big part so we talked about traction and distraction there's two more parts to this model which are the two things that prompt us towards traction and distraction it's the the two spurs that cause us to do everything that we do in life the external triggers and the internal triggers so external triggers you know you'll be very familiar with these are all the pings the dings the rings the notifications the people in your office who are tapping you on the shoulder all of these things can lead towards distraction, of course. Yeah. But what turns out to be a more common source of distraction, the much, much more distraction starts off not from the things around us, but from what's going on inside of us, what we yes, call the internal triggers. So when I'm feeling bored, lonely, uncertain, stress, fatigue, whatever it might be, I am looking to escape those uncomfortable sensations with something. 
And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, one of the things that I, I, I really gets my goat about the self-help industry these days is this idea that if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied, <laughs> that something's wrong with you and nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> Yeah. Excuse me. And, it, that, and everything is about mindfulness. If you're mindful, everything will be okay. Well, there, I, yeah, I, I do think that there's a place for that. I think for some people go too far. Some people think we can meditate all our problems away and that we should avoid uh, feeling discomfort by meditating on it or, or being mindful about it. And I think that there is a place for that, but I think sometimes it goes too far because the first thing we want to do in recognition of the fact that all of our behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, the first thing we should do is to figure out, can we fix the source of the discomfort, yeah. right? Can we fix the problem? <laughs> and sometimes that means we have to stop meditating and go do something about the problem. <laughs> so if we can fix the problem, we need to. So whether that's, you know, if you're checking your device uh, when you're with your kid, I got news for you. It's not your device, right? This is what I used to do. I would be with my daughter and I'd say, I want to be with her. And yet I would be on my phone. Well, that wasn't the device's fault. It was because there was stuff going on in my head and in my life that I was looking to escape from. And if I didn't deal with what was going on inside me, I would always so be distracted true. by something. So we either fix the source of the discomfort or we learn tactics to cope with it in a healthier manner. And so that's where we have these three principles that I talk about in that first section of the book around how we can reimagine the trigger, we can reimagine the task, and we can reimagine our temperament. And by doing these three things, this is how we start to deal with in these internal triggers in a way that leads us more towards traction rather than distraction. Well, it's interesting you talked about the temperament thing, and I think you talked about the identity of being indistractable, didn't you? And something that Michael and I have, have often found with very successful salespeople is they have very strong identities as salespeople. Absolutely. Uh, and often when I'm interviewing something that's fascinate that's something that has totally fascinated me throughout my recruitment career is I'll talk to people and I'll say to them, if I if I bumped into you in a pub and asked you what you do for a living, what would you say? And so many of them will find an answer that is not, what do you mean, mate? I'm in sales. Mm. And and they're nearly always the ones who are struggling. Mm. Because there's something just off about their identity. Whereas the ones who are always flying, they just look at you like you're, you've completely well, lost. You never ask them the question. It. It's so self-evident as to what they are. Yes, it's it's almost wasteful asking them the question. Yeah, no, I want to talk so to you clear. about something actually near if this is all right. Because I've sat here as a spectator for a long time. <laughs> talk, talk to me about your aversion to open plan offices. Open floor plan offices, sure. Yeah, we can we can switch gears a little bit here. So <laughs> open floor plan offices have to do with this problem of external triggers. Uh, external triggers are all these pings, dings, rings, things, all of these uh, prompts to get you to either traction or distraction. And we know, I mean, several studies have confirmed that uh, if you're trying to do focused work and someone taps you on the shoulder, uh, you will have a tough time getting back on track after someone's done that to you. And so even though we tend to blame our devices, our phones, our computers for all these interruptions, uh, one of the most common sources of distraction is the office colleague that says, hey, can I just talk to you for a quick sec? Or did you hear this bit of office gossip? That can be just as much of a pernicious form of distraction. And so we need to take care of those distractions as well. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that open floor plan offices are going anywhere. Uh, no, you know, they're ingrained in our culture, aren't they? Right. And they save companies a ton of money. Let's be honest here. That's why they're there. They save companies a ton of real estate costs. So they're not going anywhere. 
Uh, I do think that there are solutions though. So I think we have to do what's called hacking back. So rather than changing the office setting, which is not gonna happen, it's too expensive to change. And uh, what we can do instead is to hack back the setting. So for, one, for example, in every copy of Indistractable, I give people what I call a screen sign. It's a piece of cardstock that you pull out of the book, you rip it out of the book, you fold it into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And it tells your colleagues, I'm indistractable and has a big red light on it. It says, I'm indistractable, please come back later. And so it's this simple technique that tells folks, look, I, I will be available sometime today, but not right now. Right now, I need to do my focused work because it turns out that we don't even realize how many mistakes we're making when we're constantly oh, interrupted. Totally that we, agree. We don't do our best work. And the tragedy is that we don't even realize we don't do our best work. We think we're doing a great job, but it turns out we're making way more unnecessary mistakes than we even realize. So I'll tell you a story, Nir. I think we're talking about, what, seven, eight years ago, Mike? Yeah. I, 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 I went out, I turned around to a colleague and I said, I want you to go on a, onto one of these corporate websites and I want you to get made 20 hats and on those hats, I want to put, I want you to have put on them, do not disturb. Love it. <laughs> right? And this is seven, eight years ago. And uh, I just felt at the time in the office, people were, there was, we, we cr we'd created this team environment and we wanted this very vibrant atmosphere, but I felt like people weren't doing the really tough stuff That's because right. they were always talking to each other. It was too collegiate. Yeah. yeah. And, um, what was amazing was nobody wore, nobody would wear the hats, would they, Mike? <laughs> well, do you know, it's, I'm going to say it's not something actually I agree with, is my own opinion of it. I think that, that people, you know, we're pack animals, human beings, and we congregate to interact with each other. And actually, I think that if, cause that I think if you sit there in silence, it doesn't add anything to the atmosphere in the office. And actually, people have got quite stuff to do they should just go and do it somewhere else. I don't mean that's damn rude, but they should just go and do it somewhere else. Yeah, think, there is that point. Particularly yeah. in sales. You know, I, I used to like the um, the option of having a call-out day where all the salespeople are in the room, you know, all, all at once. They're all making sales calls. They're all hammering it out. They're all doing their stuff. Yeah, they're having a bit of banter and hiding each other's cups of coffee and putting each other's, you know, staplers in jelly molds and all that kind of stuff. But I just think that that is what that is part of the human genome is actually being together and working with each other. Whereas yeah. if you get somebody in an office who sat there with a hat on or whatever it might be, they're actually better off not being in the office. So so here's there. the thing. We, we jumped around a little bit. There's four steps and they need to be done in order. So the second step is to make time for traction is to yeah. plan ahead. So I don't want to hear anyone complaining about that the, that they're distracted if they haven't planned what they want to do with their time. Because the rule is you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you say, yeah. oh, I was going to do my sales calls and then I got distracted. Well, was that time to do your sales calls in your calendar? Did you have time for it? And so I have no problem whatsoever with people socializing. I couldn't agree more, Mike. We need that time to be sociable. However, if your entire day is dictated by someone else's need for banter, you don't own your time, right? You're, you're doing whatever someone else wants you to do when they want you to do it. And I think that's a recipe for disaster because if you don't claim that time to say, look, I really need 
two hours of uninterrupted time. You know, I think one of the most most important competitive advantages in the modern workplace today is time to think. So yeah. few people make time to just think for 45 minutes, right? <laughs> Strategize about what you want to do with your life, with your business, with your career, what needs to happen next, as opposed to the, the fact that so many of us we're just reacting. We're reacting to emails. We're reacting to taps on the shoulder. We're reacting to emails all day long that we have no time for reflection. And well, so I'm not saying you should stay in a cave all day and be antisocial. No, what I'm saying is for the time in your day when you need time for reflection, when you need time to do uninterrupted work, you need to carve out that time because if you don't plan your day, someone's going to plan it for you. Yeah, I agree. And we, we are there is, as Jonathan will attest, I am absolutely... If, if I want to do something, I don't let anybody else interrupt me on it. Do you know my main takeaway out of, out of your book now? And I really like the book. I don't want to appear negative because I did think it was excellent. Is this 10-second rule. Oh, is it 10 mm. minutes or 10 seconds? 10 minutes. I just think that has just been absolutely brilliant. Really yeah, like yeah. that. It is yeah, it is a really good takeaway. Yeah, to explain to people who are listening what Nair advocates is, I think you maybe use food, actually, as your example. Is it, I'm going to eat a cream cake, actually... I'm going to wait 10 minutes and see if I really want it in 10 minutes time. Or I'm right. going to look at Facebook. Actually, I'm going to wait 10 minutes. And I am, I literally have a will of iron. I know you're not a fan of, a fan of wills, but I have a will of iron. <laughs> Even that has affected me. I think it's just blooming marvelous, actually. Yeah, it's so fantastic. simple. Yeah. It's a yeah, really absolutely. simple diet trick, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And, and, it, and it turns out that it's much more effective than what most people do, which is strict abstinence. So a lot of people say, you know, if I don't want to do something, then just don't do it. Right. Just just say no. Like Nancy Reagan told us in the 1980s. <laughs> well, it turns out that strict abstinence backfires oftentimes because it leads to rumination. So if I said right now, whatever you do, don't think about a white bear. Don't do it. Don't think about a white bear. What are you thinking about? <laughs> yeah, right. Of course you are. Of course you are. And so that that's what happens. It turns out with all sorts of these compulsions, whether it's smoking, whether it's checking our phones too much, whether it's eating too much, it's actually the rumination that is causing us the discomfort. Remember, all human behavior is prompted by the desire to escape discomfort. So when you ruminate on something, when you're constantly thinking, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, okay, fine, I'll do it, that relief of the discomfort can be registered as the in the brain as in fact something pleasurable. Yep. So this is what we see with cigarette studies, that when smokers stop for a second and actually smell the smoke and are mindful of what they're doing, most of them don't even like it. The reason they're smoking is because it relieves the tension of telling themselves not to smoke. And so we can learn from this lesson and tell ourselves, look, I can give in to any distraction. I can give in to that piece of chocolate cake. I can give in to checking email when I, when I don't really want to, whatever it might be, in 10 minutes. And for those 10 minutes, all you have to do is surf the urge. This is what, what psychologists call surfing the urge because emotions, these uncomfortable urges, they're like a wave. They crest and then they subside. So if you can be patient enough to just contemplate that sensation, to just be with that sensation, as opposed to you know, being, uh, being contemptuous with it, as opposed to blaming yourself or shaming yourself, instead to just be curious about that sensation. And then in those 10 minutes, you can either go back to the task at hand or be, be with that feeling. And you'll find that in the course of just 10 minutes, the sensation subsides and you'll get back to what you wanted to do. I thought it was superb that. that. I know it's probably only a very small part of the book, really. It's it is. <laughs> it, it, I thought it was absolutely excellent. The other Thank thing you. That about it, 
is, you know, throughout the book, you're talking about people's addiction to email and sending work email whilst, you know, when they get up or whilst they're in bed or at the dinner table or whatever it may be. I mean, maybe I've just misread it, but I, I, I don't think the UK culture sounds quite as intense as the US culture, really. What? It sounds very full on to be at the dinner table with your family at a restaurant sending a work email. That's terrific. I mean, uh, hey, God bless you. If that if that's the case over there, that's terrific. Over here, uh, that is everywhere. I mean, if you go to the average restaurant in average America, uh, you will see many, many people on their devices. Now, I think that is changing. I think that there is uh, what, what people call this cultural antibodies. Uh, sociologists yeah. call this tendency that we have when something is hurting us, we find new ways to make sure that we stop doing those behaviors that are hurting us. So I think it is changing. But I think I think a lot of people are struggling with this because they feel this pull to use their devices, even when they say they want to be with their family, with their friends, or whatever it might be. Well, in so meetings, I, by the way, I, I see this. Life is, is in the book. You give a tip when people are on their phone, which is when yeah. somebody, so you and me are having a having a beer. You pick up your phone. I say, "Crikey, that must be important." Is everything okay? <laughs> Love I, it. Love that. <laughs> I'm going to do that this weekend. I, I have a friend who is a is an obsessive tweeter and we're going out on the beer on Saturday night. And I know at some point I'll just lose him conversationally. He'll disappear yeah. on me and I'll, and I'll be sat there and he'll just be on his phone tweeting something. And I'm going to say, is everything okay? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's terrific. I mean, that this is exactly what we need to do. It's what we did with smoking, by the way. Yeah. I didn't explain that to the listeners actually, but that was your point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when I was a kid uh, that my parents uh, lost friends because they asked their friends, please smoke outside. Because yeah. back in the early 80s, you just expected to smoke in someone's living room. Can you imagine if yeah. someone came to your house and just lit up a cigarette? <laughs> right? You'd that be would like, be crazy. What? Yeah. yeah. And actually, right. that, that whole concept of creating a social antibody, I thought was really interesting to have yeah. those indistractable relationships and therefore the value of those. I thought was really important. One of the things I did do actually as a result of the book was I sent a message to a number of my friends on WhatsApp to say, Hey guys, uh, you guys, are my friends, and I love you all very much. Um, and I want to spend more time with you. So I will be in the following restaurant at the following time, one on the first day, first Wednesday of every month for the next six months. Wonderful. And I will be there. And those of you who will show up will show up and those of you who don't won't, because I realized actually it did nudge me to think it's not spending enough quality time with these people. That is um, so smart because what you've done is you've made time for traction. You've said yeah, on yeah. a regular occurrence, this is going to happen in my life. How many times do we bullshit people and say, oh, we'll get a coffee sometime. Let's go out for yeah. a beer and it never happens. So what you've done is say, look, same time, same place. I'm going to be here. If you value time with me, I'm here. <laughs> that's yeah. great. I think that's and I, wonderful. And I will be there. I will. I. I've. I mean, I've got a lot of flexibility because it's it's mine and Mike's business. So if I want to work from home on Wednesday, I work from home on a Wednesday. So I know every Wednesday I'll just work from home now and I'll turn up there and I'll have a sandwich and a coffee at one o'clock. Love it. But at I some point, well, I'm going to find out whether I've got any friends or not now. <laughs> at, at some point, they'll start showing up. Yeah, I think that's and wonderful. I'll just send a message every Wednesday. Hey guys, sorry, none of you could make it. Looking forward to the next month. Yeah, yeah, and whether it's whether it's a social occurrence like you know uh, waiting at the pub, or whether it's uh, getting together for a sporting event that happens every week, or you know a church group or a civic group, this has kind of been lost in, in large part in people's lives, and I think we paid a price in that we don't have time with the people we really like, and so I think social media 
is a wonderful supplement. It's not a replacement for in-person interactions. Yeah. But I, I think there was one other point that I want to talk about in terms of, you know, we talked about how when, when a, a friend is using their device uh, with you and you want them to rejoin the conversation, you can use this technique of, hey, is everything okay? I think we see this just as much, if not more so, in the workplace. And it drives me crazy. And it's typically what I see is it's the highest paid person who does it. Right. It's the person who says, oh, I'm the boss. And so I can check my phone whenever I want in the middle of a meeting. And this has kind of a secondhand smoke effect, because when other people see you checking your device, they think, oh, my gosh, what's waiting for me in my email inbox? And so they start checking their phones. And pretty soon we have a meeting where we have what, you know, a bunch of zombies in the room. Yeah. They're physically present, but their brains are gone because they're they're on their devices. So what the heck was the point of the meeting? It's and total so I, contagion. Exactly. Exactly. So if we're going to have a meeting in the physical world, we need to be present both in body and mind. And that's why I say we need no devices except for one laptop per meeting to just record what happened in the meeting. But I think, you know, I think every conference room should have a charging station where when you go into the conference room, you plug in your phone, you know, you follow the rule ABC, always be charging so that your device is charging in the corner. And meanwhile, we can have a conversation without these devices. We just don't need them if we're going to have an actual physical meeting. Yeah. Michael, how often do we speak to people on the phone? And I'll say, you're right. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm on a conference call, but it's not important. <laughs> and they're on the phone with us and on the conference call. <laughs> the conference call is so boring because in reality, it was just a distraction put in their calendar. that A meaningful value, a meaningless, valueless con call that takes two hours. It's interesting, Neil. I, I like the bit in your book where you were talking about sharing your schedule with your manager. Yeah. I thought that was very good. And, and for the people listening again, what Neil advocates is that we create our time box, which are our, our, our pieces of time set aside to do certain tasks and then share it with people that we work with. And being in sync over that. Because I think that's a really sort of smart thing to do. Because actually, if that other person doesn't know that you've time boxed to focus on writing a tender, they're going to call you and then right. they're going to distract you. And then it's not going to be their point, their fault. I thought that was really smart, actually. Yeah, it's it's a life changer, let me tell you. And it's something that you know I hear from a lot of people who tell me, look, how can I become indistractable when my boss keeps bothering me? Right. My boss is constantly interrupting me throughout yeah. the day. And so what I tell them is, you know, they, they say, how can I do anything? Maybe my boss can do something, but what can I do? And this is something that I find that managers are begging for. They want employees to do, but they don't ask their employees to do it because they don't want their, their employees to feel like they're being micromanaged. So this is actually, you know, a lot of uh, business advice out there. And, and I would agree with much of it is that culture flows downhill, that, you know, you, you can't tell people to be indistractable if you're not indistractable yourself as, as a manager. However, one of the things that we can do to manage up, to manage our bosses, is to do this process of schedule syncing. And this is life-changing. And all this involves is sitting down at the beginning of the week and putting down what you want to do with your time. You know, how do you want to spend your time? What's traction for you? Because remember, if we don't know what is traction, we don't know what is distraction. So we put out on a calendar what we want to do with our time. I'll give you, I built actually a tool that I can give you for the show notes that you can share. It's free. You don't even have to sign up for anything. But anyway, the idea here is you put in your calendar what you want to do with your time. And then once a week, you sit down with your manager, you sit down with your boss. This takes literally 15 minutes. And you say, here, boss, okay, here's what I'm doing with my time. Here's how I planned out my week. Here are the tasks that I won't get to. Can you help me reprioritize if there's anything that's a, that I should switch around? 
And that process is life-changing. Managers love it because for the first yeah. time they have transparency into their workers' calendar. I mean, how frustrating is it as a manager when you say, what is this guy doing all day, right? How is he? What's that? Say, so particularly when they work from home. Yes. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. That's exactly right. You have no idea. Are they getting anything done? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and so having that template of, hey, here's what I'm doing with my time. Uh, here's time when I have time to discuss things with you. Here's when I'm open to interruption, as the case may be. Here's when I'm open to socialize, whatever it might be. Uh, but having that schedule sync takes 15 minutes. It's a life changer. It's incredibly, incredibly productive. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, Mike and I work in a world where the mobility of people's labor is immense. Um, they don't, people don't have to put up with a working in, not in the current economic climate and market. People don't have to put up in an environment where they can't have that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think by and large, I think it's great, right? The freedom to work from anywhere, whenever you want, wherever you want. I think it's wonderful. However, what we're, we've lost, you know, everything comes at a price. And so what we've lost in the fact that we can work from anywhere is that, you know, managers are really wondering what, what are these people doing with their time? How are they, you know, we think they're, they're productive. And of course we look at the end results, but you know, many times what managers do is they just lop on more things to do. Here's another task and another task and another task with no sense of how much time people have to do those jobs. And of course, that leads to frustration, that leads to burnout, leads to all kinds of problems which could be solved if people did this weekly schedule sync. Yeah, I agree completely. Okay, I loved your usage of pocket, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I really liked that, just the concept of, of how, how often, you know, I often see people go into the LinkedIn feed and Mike and I were talking about this when we recorded the few episodes of the show the other week. We were both saying, and, you know, Michael is, as, as he's already mentioned, an extremely strong-willed character. And even Michael will say, sometimes the LinkedIn feed will catch him. And before he knows it, he's just gone down like a, down a LinkedIn hole. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of content. And that's, that, that whole concept of using Pocket for, I'll read it later. What's amazing is I've used Pocket for years now. And I find if I stick something, throw something, I literally, I'll just throw information into Pocket, an article about the industry, a LinkedIn profile that I want to have another look at, and maybe I'll create a task in Trello with later. What's amazing is when I actually sit down on a Sunday, I do all of that catch up, stuff that I've thrown into Pocket, I process email, I'll add David Allen. Um, and what I find is 75% of the stuff I've thrown into Pocket is just utter shit. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and I, I don't read anyway. See, this is what happens when we you give our when we give ourselves a bit of time, uh, as opposed to impulsively doing these things. Whether it's yeah. checking email, you know. So one of the strategies that we can use to reduce the time we spend on email up to ninety percent is giving most emails a little bit of time to marinate. And I talk about in the book exactly how to do that using labels. Yeah. And this other technique that you described is using an app like Pocket. And for those who aren't familiar with it, basically, it's a little it's it's a Chrome extension. So you put it on your web browser. And you make a rule for yourself that when you see an article online that sounds interesting, you don't read it on your laptop, okay? Instead, you save it to this app. This app is called Pocket. And it scrubs out all the words without all the other distracting external triggers like the ads and the other articles. So whether it's reading The Guardian or The New York Times or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, these things are designed to hook you per my first book that I wrote. I know exactly the psychology of how they are designed yeah. to keep you reading and reading and reading, wasting all your time. Instead, what you want to do when you put these articles into pocket, you can have the psychological relief of knowing, okay, it's there when I want it. 
And then what you can do, you can use this technique called temptation bundling, where the reward for doing something you don't really like to do. So for me, it's exercising in the gym, right? So <laughs> to incentivize myself to go on a walk or to go on the treadmill or to, you know, uh, work out in the gym, my reward is that I get to listen to these articles that I've saved earlier because Pocket Now comes with this voice technology that reads to you in every accent you can imagine. Uh, you can choose South African accent or an English accent or American accent, whatever you want. Uh, and it reads these articles to you. So that becomes kind of the reward for doing something that you don't really like to do. So it's a triple win, right? You're exercising in the gym. You're not wasting time uh, on, on uh, the web browser that would have distracted you. And you're consuming this content that you wanted to consume anyway. Yeah. Well, the biggest challenge I think so many people have is they live in their browser all the time. Because yeah, with, so with many, 300 so open many, tabs, right? Yeah, so many apps <laughs> that people use are browser-driven apps. So the temptation and the amount of the amount of distraction available via just sitting and looking at Google Chrome all day is immense. And yeah. the ability to just be a little bit more cognitively aware and and know I can put that somewhere else and so much of it, when you come back to it, you realize, why did I put that in here? Yeah, and, and then you just swipe it, it because, away. And a lot of it was because it was an emotive reaction to wanting to read that at that point in time, not because actually it was really that relevant a piece of content. Right. You know, there's this uh, quote from Kierkegaard that I love. He said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. I really love that quote. Yeah. He said that 200 years ago. Well wow. before iPhones and browsers and Facebook and all of these things that we think are so distracting. And so the world is a place where we do have more freedom than ever. There are endless articles to read. There are endless YouTube videos. There are endless conversations. We, we have so much freedom to consume all this content that we're dizzy by it, right? And it makes us, yeah. in fact, more anxious unless we have systems in place that allow us to enjoy these things. I mean, I'm no Luddite. I love these technologies. But the idea here is to get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a really good segue to wrap up, actually, Nir. Um, this has been a great book and a really refreshing change for us on IRC Book Club from reading another go, 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 sell harder, close more sales book. Um, so thank you ever so much for coming on the show as a guest. You've been an absolutely fab guest, and it's been a really fascinating book. And we've had some great feedback from some of our listeners as to how helpful it's been. So thank you ever so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Cheers, Nick. Bye-bye. Thank you.